This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. You're listening to The Church Boys Free Fall Q&A. It's Billy Hollowell here with The Church Boys, and I have attorney Tyler Smith on the line. How are you doing today, Tyler? Great, Billy. Thanks for uh, taking the time. Well, thanks for coming on. I know it's it's been hectic with the holidays and everything, but obviously um, you are representing Melissa and Aaron Klein, the owners, for those of you who don't uh, remember, of Sweet Cakes by Melissa, uh, a bakery out in Oregon, who really, I mean, it's been really a bizarre case to watch unfold um, over the last year or two, just because, I mean, the, the national attention on such... And and I say benign in that a couple went to the bakery. They asked they asked for a cake, a lesbian couple, and and the clients who are Christian said, you know, we don't do gay wedding cakes, um, and and said no, and that and that was that. And you would think the story would end there. Um, for those who aren't familiar, although I'm sure most people are, the story did not end there. Um, there was a complaint filed, and and this has now become a pretty major bat a legal battle. I mean, at, at this point, and I think obviously. The most recent development, which unfolded this week, which was was that the Kleins paid a hundred and correct me if I'm wrong, was one hundred and thirty six thousand nine hundred and twenty seven dollars and seven cents. Do I have that accurate? I think that number is just about right. I don't have it in front of me. It's so specific, um, but I know that now. Part of this was the award for damages, and then there was also some interest that had accrued because the clients, as any listener of the show knows, have said repeatedly that they are that they are going to stand by their convictions on this um, on this issue. Now, let me ask you the the first question: Why did the clients decide to finally pay the money instead of refu- continuing to refuse? Um, well, there was a garnishment action that took place a few weeks ago um, where um, one of the where a couple of counts were garnished, which means that a person that alleges they're owed money for a, a lawful reason uh, can go to the bank and force the bank to turn over money. And uh, the Bureau of Labor and Industries apparently did that and got one of the banks that had Aaron and Melissa's tithing money along with their personal account in it to seize that money and, and take control of that money. Um, and so with the uh, judgment essentially outstanding, those collection efforts would probably have continued during the course of the appeal. The clients have certainly not given up the appeal. Uh, the appeal has already been filed. Um, the, the appellate process has already started. It's, a, it's a, a very much a time and timeline-driven process, so that's already underway. Uh, but during the course of the appeal, 9% interest would have continued to accumulate on that $135,000. Uh, which essentially equated to about $35 per day, um, and they would have been trying to collect or ultimately collect. So one of the ways to avoid that is simply to um, deposit the money to be held, um, unfortunately, by the Bureau of Labor and Industries um, in the interim. But it's certainly a more uh, prudent and stewardly uh, thing to do with the money that's been um, generously uh, donated by people around this country to help the clients and help this battle for religious liberties. Now, I know it's really complicated, too, and, and we had covered numerous times, and I for, I'm forgetting the website where they raised the money um, off the top of my head right now, but, you know, there's there's complications, too. When you cash that money in, um, you have to pay taxes on it and all of that, so I know that, that it's not, you know, I think everyone assumes, oh, you have a crowdfunding campaign and you walk away with that, and I'm, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you pay a good chunk of that money towards taxes, and they, and they had received a sizable... Some, um, but 
I also know that their point was always we don't want – they didn't really want to have to dip into that in the beginning because they really wanted to continue doubling down on this. And you've said they're not giving up. I know some people have said, um, oh, well, you know, look, they're giving up. They're paying. And I know you spoke to that just a little bit now. I know this is a complicated process. Can you explain why they're not why they're not giving up, why the payment is not just them giving up on this? Yeah, sure. Um, now, uh, I just to, to comment on the first thing you mentioned, I've conveniently forgotten about the first crowdfunding um, place they used, too, because they're obviously not very religiously tolerant. <laughs> yeah. um, but as far as the, the latter part of your question, um, the appellate process, we have alleged a number of constitutional violations, both in our defense of the, of the first lawsuit, some of which prevailed and some of which have not prevailed yet, but the appellate process is the place that we will be able to make other and more continuing constitutional arguments asserting and trying to protect the religious liberties, the free speech rights, and other rights that the, that the clients have and at least should have under Oregon law and the United States constitutional law. So that takes place in the appellate process. So uh, ultimately, if we win the appeal, um, that could vindicate their constitutional rights under this and that money would go back to them. What kind of timeline, I mean, is this something you can predict, you know, in terms of, okay, what happens next, you know, like, take me through that, or is it just sort of like you have no idea when this will be taken up? The, no, it'll, the briefing schedule um, is taking place already. Um, the briefing uh, deadlines will be sometime in February, um, and those briefs are already being worked on and prepared, and so... After that, then the, the state will have a chance to write their response briefs, and then we will have a chance to write reply briefs, and that's what the, how the process proceeds. So it'll probably be done being briefed in maybe the April timeline. I haven't actually checked the very end deadline on that. Um, and after that period of time, the Court of Appeals gets, the, gets it, and usually right now is at least eight-month wait if not longer, before they issue a decision, um, and and then we are in the waiting game. After the briefing is done, we just wait. Now, I mean, this is potentially, I would assume, a years-long battle, because I would assume there can be appeals, and I don't know the whole process there in in Oregon and and how that works, but this can go back and forth, I would assume, for a while, and I guess the, the secondary piece of that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but the secondary question, I guess, is how far are you guys willing to go? Will you take this to the Supreme Court if you need to, if they're willing to take it up, God forbid, it goes that far? Well, there is a lot of um, back and forth, a lot of waiting. That's where some of the uncertainty comes in. You know, if if we win, if the other side wins, then who will appeal? Will the other side appeal? Would we appeal? Um, and there's a lot of waiting game for the clients. There's obviously takes us a lot of time and effort uh, to put out these defenses. Uh, the clients have to, you know, try and still provide for their family, um, have income, um, do that. We have to obviously uh, run our businesses, but there are people around the country that have helped out with that. Um, so yes, you know, God willing, we'll be able to continue the fight and ultimately prevail and restore some religious liberties uh, in these types of cases. Um, but th- that's yet to be determined. We certainly need prayers of the public. We need um, the clients need you know the financial support like they've gotten. You, you, you may realize this already, or I've even talked about it, but it, it's shocking how it goes in waves. You know, when a press story hits, um, it gets back on the attention, and they've received funds, and then there's, you know, six or eight-month dry periods. Um, so they're, they're very gracious, and they haven't really 
uh, been interested in asking for that, but you know, at a time, people started asking them how can they contribute, how can they contribute, and so ultimately, um, you know, a lot of people did contribute. I mean, the stakes are high on this case I, because for both sides, I mean, both sides are going to say the stakes are high. On one side, they're going to say, well, you know, this is going to give a license to discriminate. And on the other side, though, there are real religious liberty issues here for small business owners and people who. I mean, when you look at the full scope of what happened with Hobby Lobby and the ability for Hobby Lobby, which is a much bigger company, to not have to be forced to pay for certain types of contraception, there's a lot of, and I'm not a lawyer, you are, but there seems to be a lot of mirrors in terms of how you look at at this. If they're going to be exempt from that, how would you not exempt a a Christian with sincerely held beliefs from being forced to make a cake for a ceremony that that, that really they believe violates their, their rights? So it seems to me... I mean, you're kind of at the center of a case that has been very firing. That really does. There, there are big ramifications for this. It seems there are definitely big ramifications for this. We definitely feel this is a case that's teed up to make some precedent. Now, I can't go into the exact arguments that we're going to make, even though that's the most fun part of uh, fighting this battle, because we think we have some very good arguments and some significant errors that the state has made here. Um, but uh, rest assured that we've. Um, identified a lot of things that we think were erroneous that will change the outcome of this case in the long term. And, um, you know, like I said before, God willing, we'll be making those arguments and we'll prevail on those. I guess one of the questions and one of the things that has struck me as very bizarre throughout this whole entire thing has been the amount of money that was charged for one cake. And I think when even when you talk to people who who might disagree with the client's stance on this and think, oh, they should have made the cake and they should be forced to make it. You know, in New York, I live in New York State. In New York State, there's a farm that wouldn't host a wedding. They were fined thirteen thousand. That still seems extremely excessive to me. But this case, you're talking about. I mean, it's such a large sum of money. I just, what? Why did the state land on that when it comes to emotional damages? And I know that there were other damages that weren't even included. So this could have been much higher, I would assume. But why? Why this amount of money? This sum? Um, it the state asked for one hundred and fifty thousand um, dollars. I can't tell you because I don't know how they somehow came to the conclusion of one hundred and thirty-five thousand. Other than the only obvious things that a person could conclude would be the state asked for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The administrative law judge said he did not believe the two uh, complainants in a number of regards. And then, so he apparently reduced from 150 down to 135. Um, that's what's in the final order. That's uh, you know, nothing that's secret or confidential, but you have to do some analysis to see it. But that was mysterious to us, too, and uh, that might ultimately be one of the things that's discussed on the appeal. Yeah, I remember looking at that and thinking that that was, that that was odd. Um, how long have you been involved in this case, and what was it that attracted you to the Klein's um, case? Well, I actually have a, a, a law firm that's a, sort of an activist law firm. We do a lot of uh, religious liberties cases, political cases, um, civil rights cases, along with general business practice. So um, we're associated with a number of national groups. We're a private practice law firm here, but we're associated with some national law um, law firms and, and legal groups um, and heard about it through them, offered to help, and have been helping out ever since. Now, my last way question. back at the beginning, I guess to answer your question more precisely, way back at the beginning. Um, what has been? I mean, you, you practice law, so you and you've obviously been involved in a lot of cases. What has been the most bizarre 
fact or piece of this case that has just sort of stunned you throughout the process? Has there been anything, or is the whole, I mean, I'm sure the whole thing, but is, what has been sort of the one piece of it that you that is just sort of the weirdest thing you've seen as a lawyer? Um, there actually, there have been quite a few in this. Um, shocking, I guess, in, is, is the best one I can do, and it's that's just sort of the abuse of the power of the government um, to go and prosecute this case, um, prosecuting it directly contrary to what's asserted by the clients as their religious practices and their religious beliefs, and that being completely ignored by the state agency when they're uh, prosecuting based on a statutory um, you know, classification that this is now a protected status under a statute when the clients have clearly protected constitutional rights that should uh, supersede that and be more protected than a statutory right. And that the, the state and the prosecutors in this seem to ignore that. And that's quite shocking. Well, I mean, you have a family here, too, with five kids. And, and I think that's what people forget is that you have five children, you've got two parents, and you have... I mean, you're asking them, they were initially asking for $150,000, and you just, you think, you look at that and you think, what in the world, what if there was no crowdfunding campaign? I mean, what if there was, you know, what if there was no way to help them, and, and they were faced with that? I would imagine, you know, there are going to be other people, and there have been other people as well. Well, well, listen, um, I, you know, I'll give you one final question here, and I'll let you go, because you've been great, and I appreciate the time. You know, what, is there anything you'd want people to know about the clients? I mean, you mentioned them being gracious. Is, is there anything you'd want people to know about their character, maybe, um, as their attorney, that maybe hasn't been as reported in the media as you'd like? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, the clients are absolutely one of the most genuine, um, honest-hearted, sincere people about practicing their faith in everything they do throughout the day, no matter where they're at. Um, and they sincerely, uh, they literally had um, a whole lot of the pastor and the members of their congregation come to their place of business and pray over it before they opened up the doors. That's the kind of, they would pray over each wedding cake. I mean, these are people that sincerely held beliefs that are trying to practice their faith in the best way they know to give honor and glory to God. And um, that's all they were doing. And these are, you know, fantastic people that had didn't have a mean bone in their body, you know, yeah. about that and, and had this happen to them. Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time today. And, I, and, you know, I hope to keep in touch. We'd love to have you back. I know the clients probably can't be speaking very much right now as some of this process unfolds. So, um, you know, we'd love to have you guys all on when that time comes and appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. God bless your efforts. Thank you very much.